All right, before us this morning is Psalm 139, one of the more famous psalms in the Psalter, and with good reason. We'll look at this psalm this morning, and I I think this psalm, uh, as well as a couple others that we're going to be looking at in the next couple weeks, uh, flow from and expand upon the ideas of God's sovereignty that we saw last week in Psalm 97. So here we have Psalm 139, another of the psalms of David. Let me read that for us. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where, sh- where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and and the light about me by night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So ends again the reading of God's holy and infallible and inerrant word. As we come before it this morning, may he plant it deep within us, and may it bear fruit in our lives. Let me pray for us as we come before the word this morning. Our Father in heaven, we, as always, come to you and ask your blessing as your word goes out, that you would fulfill the promise you've made, that it goes out and does not return to you empty, instead accomplishing what you purpose for it and being successful in the things for which you send it. O Lord, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us this morning to open our eyes to see and our ears to hear the things you are telling us from your word today. In so doing, may your word become 
for us a lamp to our feet and a light to our path so that we might walk according to everything that it teaches us. As always, Father, we ask this in our Savior's wonderful and precious name. Amen. I think I saw this week, I'm pretty sure I saw this week, a little blurb, a little notice somewhere on the internet that it was John Wayne's birthday this week. Some of us are John Wayne movie fans. Um, And the article mentioned one of his best acting performances in a movie. It was in a a very fascinating movie, movie, but it's also a very troubling movie. It's called The Searchers. Troubling because this stereotypical hero, John Wayne, the white-hatted hero of Westerns, is really quite a despicable character. To put it bluntly, he's a bigoted racist. He's out for vengeance against the Indians that he calls derisively the Comanche. Indians who attacked his brother's ranch, killed everyone in it, set it on fire, and kidnapped his nieces who were hiding out behind some rocks. So he goes searching, and the problem is he can't find this tribe that he's looking for. He and his adopted half-Comanche nephew that he despises as well are on this search literally for years. The movie takes place over something like five, six, seven years. And John Wayne's character named Ethan is able to persist in the search in part because he knows this tribe of Indians very, very well. But also because of his hatred. His hatred drives them. He knows how these people live. He knows how they think. He knows their customs. He knows their language. And so he follows this path of clues, tracking them down over a long period of time. Now, the search is compelling enough in in and of itself, but the big question of the movie, the one that's particularly troubling to his adopted nephew and to the viewer, if you're paying any attention, is when he finds this tribe and when he finds his niece, one of them, unfortunately, is, is killed along the way, when he finds his niece, what is he going to do to her? Because in his eyes living with these disgusting Indians, she's become like one of them. What's he going to do? His nephew thinks he's going to kill her, and he admits as such. His bigotry, his hatred is so deep that he now thinks of her as just another Indian. She's spoiled. She's tainted. She's no longer white. The big question of the movie is, what is he going to do when he finally catches up to these people? And you know he will. It's only a matter of time. Is this Ethan character a good man, or is he a bad man? Again, it's a tremendously compelling and troubling movie. It's well written. the, The photography is incredible. It's incredibly well acted but it's just incredibly troubling. What is this searcher going to do when he finally catches up and meets this tribe? I think of that movie in relation to this psalm, (laughs) because Psalm 139 is also a little bit troubling. It's incredibly compelling as a psalm. What's depicted for us in Psalm 139 is a God 
who can go anywhere. He can go anywhere to search for us and to find us. Like the character in the movie, he knows us intimately. He knows how we talk. He knows how we think. He knows how we act. He knows who we are, and he knows where to find us. He's powerful, and he can do with us what he wants to do with us when he finds us. He's so powerful that he himself made us. In theological terms, there's three things that Psalm 139 tells us about God. That he is omniscient. He knows everything. That he's omnipresent. That he's everywhere. And there's strong indications as well of the omnipotence of God. God is all-powerful. But there's also a question, a little bit of a question in this psalm, like in the movie. What's going to happen to you when God tracks you down and finds you? What's going to happen? What's he going to do to you when he finally tracks you down and finds you? So I'm going to look at these depictions of God this morning in the psalm, omniscience and um, uh, omnipotence and omnipresence, but then conclude with, with some implications for us to think about as a result of, of these characteristics, these attributes of God. So we'll start with God, the searcher, the searcher. Psalm 139 is, is considered by many people who study it to be the best written, literarily, the best written psalm, the best poem, the best literature. It also contains some incredibly wonderful and incredibly deep theology. In fact, I could probably come back and preach another two or three sermons on this psalm or themes that are contained within it. And I want to talk as well about the connection that this psalm has to God's sovereignty that we looked at last week in Psalm 97. But let's begin with God's omnipresence, that God is everywhere, and how this is shown throughout the psalm. It's a key theme of the psalm, shown by verse 1 and a second-to-last verse. Verse 1 You have searched me, David says. You have searched me. You found me. You know me. And then verse 23 contains the request, a prayer. Search me and know me. David is willing to be searched because as the psalm reveals, he knows, he's learned, there's nowhere that he can go to escape from God's presence because God is, The consummate searcher is everywhere. And so he says things like this in verse 7. Where can I go to get away from God's Spirit? It's a redundant question. Nowhere. There's nowhere that I can go. Also, where can I flee from God's presence? Again, it's a redundant question. Nowhere. There's nowhere I can go to escape God's presence. And then David describes this omnipresent God. God is in the highest heaven. He's also in the depths of Sheol, the grave of the underworld, in verse 8. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. High or low, wherever David can think of going, there is God. And then verse 9 has some wonderful poetic language. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, 
God is there as well. What is, what is he talking about? The wings of the morning. Where does the sun rise? In the morning. In the east. From Israel's perspective, where is the uttermost sea? To the west. East or west. As far as I can go east to the rising sun, as far as I can go west into the depths of the sea, what does he say? There your hand leads me and your right hand holds me. I cannot get away from your presence. High, low, east, west, there you are. There your hand is. Leading and holding. But what about darkness? Can I hide in darkness? God is light. Can I hide in darkness? The opposite of God, he asks in verse 11 and 12. Surely the darkness can cover me. The light about me be night. But no, in verse 12, even the darkness is not dark to you. Night is bright as the day. Darkness is as light with you. There we have a hint again of God's power. So here's this incredible picture in this psalm of God's presence everywhere. Omnipresence. We should make a clear distinction here. God is not in everything. That's pantheism. But God is everywhere. High or low, east or west, light or dark, God is there. And the good news is, as David expresses it there in verse 10, if you're one of God's people, God's hand leads you. His right hand holds you. And so God is everywhere. And he takes care of his people wherever they might be. Well, God is also omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Darkness is like light to God. And with God's hand, he leads us and holds us are some indications already that we've seen of God's power. I mean, it's no small thing for God to make darkness light. And the idea here isn't just that darkness is driven away by light. We flip the light switch on and the light fills the room and it drives the darkness away. We get that. This isn't what the psalm is talking about. It's, it's talking about darkness becoming light. That's power. <laughs> we can't do that. That's something only God can do. God's right hand, that strong hand, is the one that leads us and holds us wherever we might go. Protection, direction from our powerful God. But there are other indicators of God's power in the psalm. In verse 5, if you hem, you're the one who hems me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. God controls where we go. He hems us in. He directs our, our path and our steps. God is so powerful in verse 13 that he formed, says David, my inward parts. You're the one who knitted me together in my mother's womb. Verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. This is the work of God forming his people. And this is a God who in David's prayer in verse 19 is able to slay the wicked. God can form life in the innermost parts of the earth, in the womb of the mother, but he can also take life away. Comedians joke about it. I brought you into this world, I take you out. 
God can do it. And he does it in a way that's mighty and powerful and intimate and incredible. God is so powerful in verse 24 that he's able to lead his people into the way everlasting. That's eternal life. He's able to take frail, fallen, sinful men and women and children who are going to die and give them life that never ends. That's power. That's power by the Lord our God. The emphasis in the psalm is on searching and knowing, but you can't escape the power that's inherent in those tasks. The power that makes life and gives life. The power that knits us in secret places and forms even our most inward parts and knits us together in our mother's womb. Here we have in the psalm, just as an aside, and it's an important aside, one of the most powerful arguments against abortion. Abortion stops the work of God, and how dare we do such a thing? God is doing that work in that mother's womb. Who are we to interfere with the powerful work of God? God is powerful to give life. God is powerful to end life. God is powerful to give eternal life, to raise the dead and give them life everlasting. Well, the omniscience of God is another big theme of this psalm, and we see it in several places. David says in verse 2, You know when I sit down and when I rise up. (laughs) David's saying, You know everything I do. Whatever I do, I get up, I sit down, I go here, I go there. You know it. You know it already. He also says in verse 2, You you discern my thoughts from afar. God knows what you're thinking. Always. Always. Everywhere, all the time. Verse 3, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my steps. Whether I go, whether I stop, where I'm going, all my habits, all my actions, everywhere, all the time, God knows them. Verse 4, it goes even further. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it altogether. Before I've even thought of what I'm going to say, God already knows what I'm going to say. (laughs) That's incredible. That's knowledge. We see God's hand controlling us. We see Him knowing our inmost parts in verse 13. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Inward parts is literally kidneys. You know my internal organs. That's how well you know me. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, says David in verse 14, an incredible and wonderful phrase. If I consider what you have done, your works are incredible. Your works are wonderful. My soul knows it very, very well. An example of the knowledge of God. In verse 15 we have David saying about his his whole self, My frame is not hidden from you. Even when I was being made, you knew what was going on. I am intricately woven by you. You know this. You have seen my unformed substance in verse 16. We could 
translate that also as embryo. You knew me when I was an embryo. How does the world around us treat embryos? God knows us when we're still embryos in the womb. Before I lived any of my days, he says in verse 16, every single one of them was written in your book when none of them had been as of yet. Think about that. Every single day that you will live your life, God has already written down in a book. They're already planned out. They're already numbered. And he knows exactly what you're going to do, what you think, what you say, where you're going to go, what you're going to say. Everything he knows and he's already written it down. (laughs) That's omniscience. That's knowledge. God indeed knows everything. But we can't think of God as kind of some cosmic Wikipedia. God is not just some storage place for information. What's incredible about the way David describes God's knowledge is that it's very personal and very intimate. You don't just know things, God. You know me. And you know me personally and intimately. This is the knowledge of a creator, a maker, the one who formed and knit things and not just things, but creatures and human beings and knows their inward parts and knows their deepest secrets. Who knows a piano better than the one who made it? Who knows a clock better than the one who put it together? Who knows a cake better than the one who mixed it and baked it? Take that to the ultimate degree, and that's God, how he knows us. And knows us intimately. If God was just the God who knew stuff, then he'd be easy to ignore. But no, he knows us. So what does the psalm tell us? I can't escape God because he's everywhere. He's omnipresent. These are the three things we learned in Sunday school. I don't know if this was a part of your training, but it was mine. Omnipresent, omnipotent, and omniscient. We had to learn all those words, the omnis. But here they are in Psalm 139. I can't go anywhere where God is not. He's omnipresent. My whole being is dependent upon his power to make me and everything, really. And his omniscience is shown in in how he knows, and he knows me and he knows you intimately. All right, so some implications other than in addition to the the idea about abortion. Psalm 139 portrays to us a God who is majestic, powerful, transcendent. You can't escape his presence. You're completely dependent upon his power, and you are utterly and intimately known by him. This is a great and majestic and powerful God. Well, that points us to his, his sovereignty, what we talked about last week. And what I want to say about that is, if, if God is sovereign, then he must be omnipotent. He must be omniscient. He must be omnipresent. These three things must be true for God to be truly sovereign. Because think about it, if any one of those is absent, God really isn't very sovereign. If he's not all-powerful, someone could resist him. Well, that's not a very strong king. If he doesn't know everything, someone could outwit him. And that's not a very strong king. 
if he's not everywhere present, there'd be some territory or some area of, of existence that's not subject to his rule. And that can't be either. If we're going to talk about a sovereign God, we've got to acknowledge his, his omnis, <laughs> his omnipresence, his omnipotence, his omniscience. And if we acknowledge those, then we have to also acknowledge that he's sovereign. You can't have an omnipotent God and deny his sovereignty. That doesn't make any sense. So these two things go together, and this builds on our understanding, therefore, of this omnipotent God, or this sovereign God who reigns in Psalm 97. And we're hopefully going to build on this idea as we go through the next few psalms. The second invocation, and, and this is one that I've, I've been mentioning, but I want, I want to stop and think about it for a minute. This psalm tells us <laughs> that God knows us. So we've got his transcendence. God is this big, majestic God who can do anything and be anywhere, and, and no one can escape his presence. But the other part of the psalm is, is he knows us. He knows you, he knows me, and he knows us intimately. Nowhere to hide. Nothing he doesn't know. And he can do anything to us that he wants to do. There are a couple ways you can respond to that truth. And one of them, quite frankly, is sheer terror. Because what is this God going to do to me when he finds me? And those who are wicked, as described in the psalm from verses 19 to 21, those who are wicked, men of blood, those who speak against God with malicious intent, those enemies of God who take his name in vain, There should be terror for them. Sheer and utter terror. And they should respond to the psalm and the truth in the psalm with terror. True, abject fear of God because God can kill them. And in fact, God will kill them. That's one of the questions in the movie. Is he going to kill this niece when he finds her? We know what God is going to do to the wicked when that day of judgment comes. And this psalm tells us that this God who's coming in judgment is not distant, he's not far off, he's not sitting on a cloud somewhere, strumming a harp, waiting for things to happen. He's present, he's close, he's near, he's watching, he knows and sees everything. And he knows it intimately, and he knows it in great detail. He knows every day of the wicked as well. And that should strike fear and terror into their hearts. Hopefully, hopefully the motive would be to move them to repentance and faith, to realization of what faces them, and to accept the offer of salvation that God offers in his Son. Well, that's the wicked. To me, it's also a little bit scary for us. I mean, think about it again. God knows you, and he knows me. He knows our thoughts. He knows our emotions. He knows everything that we do or say, even before we do it or say it. Now we're safe because we're in Christ. God will not kill us when he finds us because he killed his son instead of us. But still, this intimate knowledge that God has of us should be a motivation for us, who are God's people, to turn from sin. Sinful thoughts, sinful actions, sinful words, uh, 
Because God knows everything that we do, and he sees everything that we do. I cannot go in some dark place and sin and think I'm going to get away with it, because God is going to see that. I can't try and hide it in my own heart and, and, and shield it from those around me as if nothing's wrong. Because God sees into my heart and he knows. That's a little bit scary. And I think that's a good motivator for us to turn away from sin and to pursue the godly path that our Lord lays before us. But there's also a comfort in that. And I don't want to pass over the, the comfort. There's comfort in God knowing us and God seeing us and seeing everything about us. And the comfort for me is this, and we've seen it in the Psalms now for months as we've been looking through them. We can be honest with God. We don't have to pretend. We don't have to be someone we're not. We don't have to hide our emotions or pretend that we're not feeling what we're feeling about this or that circumstance of life. Because God already knows. And we've seen that portrayed over and over and over again in the Psalms. The psalmists are very honest with God. This is how I feel. This is what I'm thinking. Oh God, hear me. And answer and do something. And in some, sometimes you read some of these psalms, as I've, I said, especially early on, and the psalms make us really think hard about what's being said. They make some pretty bold claims and statements. That should give us some comfort. We can be honest with God and open with Him. We don't have to, you know, kind of tiptoe around God and, and try not to hurt His feelings, as it were. You're not going to hurt God's feelings. He already knows what you're thinking and feeling anyway, so why not just be honest and open before him in everything, with our prayers and our praises and our thanksgivings. And this leads to the, to the last little part of, of the psalm. David has a prayer at the end of this psalm in verses 23 and 24. And it's really an incredible prayer. If all this is true, David now can come with confidence before God and, and pray this prayer. You, God, who have searched me and have known me, continue to search me and continue to know me. Search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there any, be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. For the wicked, for the enemies of God, this would be an invitation to God to, to, to destruction and terror and fear. But for the righteous, those of us who are righteous before God because of our relationship with Jesus Christ through repentance and faith, this is an invitation to intimacy, to life and to joy with God and in God. It reflects a desire to know God and to be known by God. And I wanted to pick that New Testament reading from, from Luke this morning because Jesus tells his disciples, ask and you will receive. You seek, and you will find. God seeks and finds you. Well, do the same in return. Seek God. Find Him. Because what does He say? He will give you the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say He's going to give you a nice house, nice clothes, a lot of money, tons of friends, a whole lot of influence, success in this world. He'll give you the Holy Spirit. He'll give you His own presence with Him and, and with you. So this prayer of David is an, is an echo of what we've been talking about since the first Sunday of this year when we looked at Psalm 27. 
that one request David had to God to dwell with him, to gaze upon his beauty, and to inquire in his temple, to dwell with God, to be with him all the days of his life, to gaze upon his beauty, to see God, to be with God, to see God, to inquire in his temple, to know God. That's intimacy with the the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God of the universe. And that's a powerful and wonderful thing. That's what David asked for. And this is, this God that he wants to be with is the same God of Psalm 139. Again, in the movie The Searchers, there's, there's, a, there's a question that lingers through the whole movie. What is this character going to do when he catches up with this tribe? Which he's going to do. Is he going to kill his niece? Is he going to rescue her and let her live? Is it going to be destruction or is it going to be life? That's the question that Psalm 139 lays before the whole world. God is seeking. God is searching. God knows. What's he going to do when he finds you? Is it going to be destruction or is it going to be life? And we can take joy, we can celebrate this psalm, and we can sing this psalm, because in Jesus we have life and joy and peace and intimacy with this God who is everywhere present and all-powerful and all-knowing and indeed is the sovereign God of all creation. Let me pray for us. Lord God Almighty, we do acknowledge your sovereignty this morning. And we give thanks that you are everywhere, and that you are all-powerful, and that you know all things. This gives us hope and confidence as we walk with you. We ask that you would teach us a, a respect for these truths, and use them in us to turn us away from sin and temptation. Impress upon us as well the, the glory and wonder of your sovereignty, but also the, the joy, the privilege that we have of this intimate and, and wonderful relationship with you. So we, we do ask as well with David, our older brother, that you would search us and that you would know us, and that in the end you would lead us into the way that is everlasting. We look forward to that and know that it is possible only because of the work that Jesus Christ has done for us. And so we ask all of these things in his wonderful and precious name. Amen.